In the late winter of 1878, he was on the plains of North Texas. He crossed the Double Mountain Fork of the Brazos River on a morning when skim ice lay along the sandy shore and he rode through a dark dwarf forest of black and twisted mesquite trees. He made his camp that night on a piece of high ground where there was a windbreak formed of a tree felled by lightning. He no sooner got his fire to burn than he saw across the prairie in the darkness another fire. Like his, it twisted in the wind. Like his, it warmed one man alone. It was an old hunter in camp, and the hunter shared tobacco with him and told him of the buffalo and the stands he'd made against them, laid up in a sag on some rise with the dead animals scattered over the grounds and the herd beginning to mill and the rifle barrel so hot the wiping patches sizzled in the bore and the animals by the thousands and tens of thousands and the hides pegged out over actual squared miles of ground and the teams of skinners spelling one another around the clock and the shooting and shooting weeks and months till the boar shot slick and the stock shot loose and the tang and their shoulders were yellow and blue to the elbows and the tandem wagons groaned away over the prairie 20 and 22 ox teams and the flint hides by the ton and hundred ton and the meat rotting on the ground and the air whining with flies and buzzards and ravens and the night, a horror of snarling and feeding with the wolves half-crazed and wallowing in the carrion. I see Studebaker wagons with six and eight ox teams headed out for the grounds, not hauling a thing but lead, just pure galena, tons of it. On this ground alone, between the Arkansas River and the Concho, there was eight million carcasses, for that's how many hides reached the railhead. Two years ago, we pulled out from Griffin for a last hunt. We ransacked the country six weeks, finally found a herd of eight animals, and we killed them and come in. They're gone. Every one of them that God ever made is gone, if they've never been at all. The ragged sparks blew in the wind. The prairie about them lay silent. Beyond the fire, it was cold, and the night was clear, and the stars were falling. The old hunter pulled his blanket about him, I wonder if there are other worlds like this, he said, or if this is the only one. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and, uh, and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's September 16th, 2023, and war was always here. Before man was, war waited for him, the ultimate trade, awaiting its ultimate practitioner. Or so says the judge, who we will meet tonight as we discuss our summer book club choice, Blood Meridian, Blood Meridian, or The Evening Redness in the West. An epic novel of the violence and depravity that attended America's westward expansion, brilliantly subverting the convention of the Western novel and the mythology of the Wild West. Based on historical events that took place on the Texas-Mexico border in the 1850s, Blood Meridian traces the fortunes of the kid. A 14-year-old Tennessean who stumbles into a nightmarish world where Indians are being murdered and the market for their scalps is thriving. 
Blood Meridian, published in 1985 by American author Cormac McCarthy, was his fifth book. The bulk of the text is devoted to the kid's experience with the Glanton Gang, a hysterical group of scalp hunters who massacred indigenous Americans and others in the United States-Mexico borderlands from 1849 to 1850 for bounty, sadistic pleasure, and eventually out of nihilistic habit. The role of the antagonist is gradually filled by Judge Holden, a physically massive, highly educated, preternaturally skilled member of the gang who is extremely pale and completely hairless from head to toe. Although the novel initially re received lukewarm critical and commercial reception, it has since been become highly acclaimed and is widely recognized as McCarthy's magnum opus and one of the greatest American novels of all time. Some have labeled it the great American novel. After multiple unsuccessful attempts to adapt the novel into film, it was announced in April of this year that New Regency is set to produce a feature film based on the novel. See the child. He is pale and thin. His ears are thin and ragged. Hello and welcome. What say you guys? One of the greatest novels of all time? Uh, <laughs> 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 hard, hard, yeah, hard, hard to say. Um, uh, sure. I will kick off. I will say that this is this is a dense little bullet, and I, I went through it almost three times this summer. And it just really opens more and more each time. Like it is, it is something. Yeah. Incredible prose. Faulknerian, getting all the cliches out of the way. Faulknerian, <laughs> Melvillian, it's kind of a Moby Dick riff. It's very violent, uh, bleak, psychedelic. Um, are you yeah. able to elucidate a little bit on the Moby Dick riff? Uh, sure. Well, I mean... That might take the whole podcast. Right? <laughs> sure. I mean, that's kind of the whole... The nut, I guess. But, well, just on the... You could... You can uh, lay the judge over on top of the white whale as, you know, basically one-to-one -one almost metaphor-wise. I mean... Um, also, in the fact of it's like a you know, a, a a group of crazed men in the wilderness, like hunting an un, an unnameable, uh, you know, beast, being nature or whatever. Especially when, as Captain White's group, it seemed like the forty six men that set off. Uh, that was before he joined the Glanton gang. Mm -hmm. It Soon seemed to like be 42. <laughs> yeah. Was that the first illness first, is cholera? First 10 days, there was yeah, four, four killed. So it was yeah, down to 42, which was interesting. Nice. At one well, point he, in. He spent 42 sorry. days on the river too when he was going from St. Louis to New Orleans, I think. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. At one point, the Glanton gang consists of 19 mm -hmm. members, which is mentioned multiple times. And I was like, totally thinking about 9 11. Like, I can't, I'm going to have to search for it, but 
there was just some passage in talking about them as like 19 terrorists essentially um, <laughs> basically i think it's when they hit that they first hit that village and they kill just like everybody and they smash the infants together and all that crazy stuff so that that first major killing was tough oh god which one you mean the the yeah, one the, that you're talking raid? about so yeah, cuz it was they took down Oh, like a thousand people. Like it was a big village. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like totally a, a mass murder. I was even thinking like there's probably one, like uh, 2,000, about 3,000 people died on 9 11. So like what, about a thousand in each building. Um, I don't know. But yeah, shades of that. Um, it was interesting to me that we followed we followed Mason and Dixon with this book because there were similar themes mm-hmm. that that were in both as far as like so slavery and like the civil war even though these things weren't like addressed it was definitely you know part of what was the underlying issues for this. Yeah, I thought it was like, like in Mason and Dixon, you have that kind of fantasy sequence where they actually make it all the way across the West to the ocean. Um, and and in, in, in Mason and Dixon, it's, it is kind of a, a fantasy, like all kinds of strange, unnatural things happen. But this is, this is the voyage all the way to the, the coast, right? They get all the way to the uttermost west in the in the North American continent, right? So it's kind of a, yeah, I thought of it as almost a direct continuation of Mason and Dixon with a completely different tone. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, similar, very similar themes in certain ways. Right. But I was gonna, the fantasy add. is there too, though, because like, so I noticed that there were all these various carnival-esque moments. Mm-hmm. And maybe as you're just kind of propelled through it the first time, the second time through, they're really stacked up for me. So they're like uh, we mentioned before, there's that family of uh, the acrobats um, that they uh, helped move to another town, right? So... Um, it was like a whole family of circus performers and they had a little trick dog and then they did a tarot reading yeah. mm-hmm. scene. And I didn't really follow that. Did either of you guys follow that? Yeah, um, well, I, I thought so, but uh, um, he, he ended up getting what uh, the four of cups. That's what ki- the kid got. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. In some ways, I don't know exactly how it fits in, but uh, um, I looked up the Four of Cups, uh, which I'll, I'll look it up again in just a second. Um, so the Four of Cups, this is this is according to uh, the Crawley's deck. It's luxury, weakness, abandonment to desire, pleasure mixed with anxiety, blended success and pleasure possibly approaching their end, injustice, the seeds of decay and the fruits of pleasure. I guess this is sort of the inverted reading of it. Um, 
but uh, yeah, somehow that that says something to the kid. Who is the kid? What is he a symbol of? Etc. You know, like. Well, I mean, it, it, continue with the Moby Dick thing. I was gonna say that the judge is like. He's almost like a mixture of Ahab and the whale. <laughs> like mm-hmm. if, if Ahab and the whale became one creature, it would be Ahab. And I guess that would make the kid would have to be Ishmael, right? So, I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah. There's other parallels I've heard. Like, um, I heard somebody in a podcast or something talking about um, that scene where they leave with uh, Captain White and then they meet, they meet a Mennonite. And then the Mennonites telling them that they're um, he, they're they're bringing war into a right. uh, into a another land. You carry the war of a madman's making into a foreign land. It, it will wake yeah. up more than the dogs, you know. Right. Um, the wrath of God lays lies sleeping, hid a million years before God, and only God can awaken it. Um, and that's that's the same scene as in Moby Dick where um, they meet somebody on the dock. I forget the character, right? Uh, but oh. he's like a madman also and then prophesying that, right. that he's talking terrible about this, things will happen. When the left hand becomes the right, like there's this kind of sinister. I know, I know. Yeah, I know what scene you're talking about. But they're mm-hmm. also like they're. Yeah, I feel like there are other scene um, symmetries between this book and Moby Dick also, because I feel like there was, like, maybe they, yeah, I'm trying to, I, I, I'm i not going to be able to produce it, but. Well, there's a, there's a direct kind of tip off to the, this is on, the, in, in my edition, it's page 16, when they finally get to the sea in San Diego, um, it's just on the bottom of it. It says, uh, yeah. On page 16? No, 316. Oh. The colt the stood against the horse with its head down, and the horse was watching out there past man's knowing, past man's knowing, where the stars are drowning, and whales ferry their vast souls through the black and seamless sea. So that's already there. There's Moby Dick right there. The whales ferry their vast souls. Oh, yeah. Well, even the title. So, Moby Dick is called Moby Dick or the Whale. Right. And this is called. And the title is interesting because when you think of Blood Meridian, um, it it becomes literalized. The, the The border is this bloody space, whereas the title refers to the sunset or the evening redness in the West. You know, the Blood Meridian is kind of this red sunset yeah and, it, and it's a uh i think it's a response to uh bema like you in the kind of uh well he's quoted at in the in the epigraph i guess at the beginning uh jacob bema he's it says it is not this is a hard quote it is not to be thought that life that the life of darkness is sunken misery and lost as if in sorrowing there is no soaring, for sorrow is a thing that is swallowed up in death, and death and dying are the very life of the darkness. Um, but his one of his um, most well-known books is called Aurora, and then the subtitle to that gets translated as 
the the morning redness. Um, and so I, I'm sure McCarthy knows that, and he's directly responding to that, right? Oh. And so, and so, Aurora is the dawn coming up, the dawn of awareness, and all of these other things. We can get deeper into that, and then, and this is this is the opposite, right? Where uh, where everything is setting, yeah. I see it too as just like a vision of hell. Yeah, um, almost like the Dante in a sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it, and it, there is this the great scene where they're at the volcanic, at the volcano or around it, and there's you know hoof prints in the in the uh, dried rock. Right. Um, the and that yeah this whole thing it was a maze you'd run out upon a little promontory and you'd be balked about by the steep crevices you wouldn't dare to jump them where for aught any man knows lies the locality of hell for the earth is a globe and the void and truth there's no up nor down to it and there's men in this company beside myself seen little cloven hoof prints in the stone clever as a little doe in her going what little doe ever trod melted rock I'd not go behind scripture, but it may be that there has been sinners so notorious evil that the fires coughed them up again, and I could well see in the long ago how it was little devils with their pitchforks had traversed that fiery vomit for to salvage back those souls that had by misadventure been spewed up from their damnation onto the outer shelves of the world. Um, yeah, that that's, um, that's Tobin, the ex-priest. The ex-priest, yeah. Yeah. And and he's he's a very interesting character too. Like, it, what exactly does he represent? He it's kind of it's kind of more. He represents morality, right? Whereas the judge is this figure, this kind of Nietzschean figure um, beyond good and evil. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, that idea that idea that Tobin's talking about is that there's the the worlds touch together, right? That. Uh, Mm -hmm. that this is hell you know right so there's something interesting about fate regarding the judge like there was one of the lines he he uh, says is like if you were to come into this reality without having been born into it you would see through it you know this is not yeah like this isn't real yeah that's when he's describing he uses all these metaphors like carnival and all that um where's that oh that's on 256 um he uh just a second so he's yeah to what you this goes along with what you said earlier doug like the truth about the world he said is that anything is possible had you not seen it all from birth and thereby bled it of its strangeness it would appear to you for what it is a hat trick in a medicine in a medicine show, a fevered dream, a trance be populate with chimeras, neither, having neither analog nor precedent, an itinerant carnival, a migratory tent show whose ultimate destination after many a pitch in many a mud, mudded field is unspeakable and calamitous beyond reckoning. Which kind of speaks to the initiation. So like that was something I recognized where 
the initial violence is really pointless. So, like, we start with the kid in bar fights, you know, and then he gets shot the first time and then gets kind of healed up. And then Mm -hmm. he ends up someplace where he meets the judge for the first time. And the judge, uh, he accuses the preacher of doing all the things that the judge himself does. You know, and then he... No, I really strongly believe that because like at later at the bar after the whole tent revival meeting, you know, chases down this preacher to try and kill him. You know, one of the guys at the bar said, how did you know all those things about about the preacher? You must have been in this town. He's like, I've never been to that town. Well, you know, and basically he's like, I didn't know anything. This first time I've ever seen the guy. And then everyone started laughing. But he says like, uh. Um, in truth, the gentleman standing here before you posing as a minister of the Lord is not only totally illiterate, but is also wanted by the law in the states of Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Arkansas. Like he, the judge is obviously not illiterate, you know, so he's no, you're right. But so <clears throat> he's accusing him of, of uh, raping an 11 year old girl. Yeah. Can you imagine this people 11 years old? But right. yeah, yeah. I mean, so that is—he's an agent of chaos. Yeah, yeah, and he causes this. Uh, he, yeah, he causes this riot, and the tent gets taken down, and he's I, having a laugh. It's so it's so weird though with the judge. Like, um, this is something I, I I listened to another podcast or something about or something about uh, about this book, and. This guy, I think he was a professor, he was saying that uh, he was, this professor is unsure if all of these heinous acts involving sex with kids can really be attributed to the judge. Um, because the judge himself is like a huge infant. He's described as that. He's this massive, hairless yeah, he's like Don right? Gately. I was going even gonna mention. So, so he's not uh, he's not described as being super virile or sexual. Like, and, but do you and then, think that's because he's he's kind of a likable devil in some ways? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, the the point though is that uh, I don't know if um, like his crimes. Obviously, he he murders without without uh, any sort of twinge of conscience or anything else, you know, but, but uh, this, the sort of sexual aspect to him, like especially the, the pedophilia or whatever, like it's always implied, you know, but it's never explicit, you know, that's one thing in the book that's not explicit. Right. And, and uh, like, he's always naked all the time anyways, you know, it's like, so what is his sexuality? He's hanging out with kids all the time and then he ends up killing them sometimes um, are they just his playmates, or or is He's he like violating them, or or what is he doing? You know, like a. Um, He's like Michael Jackson. But I don't know that about. So Michael Jackson, <laughs> Michael Jackson just kind of played with kids. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't uh, molesting. Well, that's he was molesting kids. Or? A whole argument, but that's one argument that people put forth that he was kind of like a a, a child like a, mm-hmm. like a peter pan figure or something. exactly yeah. yeah yeah um so yeah judge holden is a mixture of captain ahab the whale moby dick and michael jackson 
like the one the one thing that's different from uh, did you guys check out My Confession by Samuel Chamberlain, which I, is sort of the yeah. So that's so, what's interesting about this is the the backbone of the story is largely true. And yeah, it, the violence it, it, is largely true. Like this isn't like overdone, like Tarantino style. This is this is reality. Accurate. And if you if you look at the description of the judge in in that in that story, it's interesting because it's um it's it's pretty close to what McCarthy's talking about, but it's in McCarthy it's described that the judge has very um, small hands and feet, whereas in the Chamberlain story, he's he's got big hands, and and at one point a child is murdered. Well, they f- they find this dead body of a child, and he or she has handprints on her on her neck and uh, massive handprints, and that's one of the things that sort of implicates the judge, right? But but in in this story, um, the judge has small hands and small feet. That's one thing that McCarthy changes. One one crucial aspect of this of the description that he changes, um, which is bizarre. So I don't know what he's saying really, like uh, uh, McCarthy about the judge. Like if uh, yeah, there's there's theories out there that it wasn't the judge at all that 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 kidnapped and raped kids. It was the kid. <laughs> um, oh. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I would buy that, but... I don't know either. But, uh, <laughs> it's, uh... So uh, I was kind of going down this path of like mindless violence like as initiation. His battle with Toadvine seems pretty pointless, you know, uh, when he meets him for the first time and they, they wrestle in the mud in front of the outhouse. Um um, and then for no reason they go burn down that hotel. You know, like I don't know if they kill the guy in there or not, or what the point of that was. But they burn down the hotel, and then, um, the you know, then uh, the kid rides off on his on his mule, and um, <laughs> and then he ends up at that. Uh, at that Mexican bar where he's trying to work for some whiskey and he does some sweeping and stuff and then ends up killing the bartender. <laughs> and and that felt pretty brutal. Like, I guess that was not pointless, but it felt pretty brutal. Like maybe that initiation's done. Cause after that, then he, you know, the soldiers hear about him and want him to go into captain white's group. Mm, yeah. And then, and then the judge waves him off basically. Like the judge is there, kind of waving him off. <laughs> um, now I'm just re- reading from my confession. This is how Chamberlain describes the judge, um, Judge Holden. The second in command, now left in charge of the camp, was a man of gigantic size called Judge Holden of Texas. Who or what he was, no one knew, but a cooler-blooded villain never went unhung. He stood six feet six in his moccasins, had a large fleshy frame, a dull, tallow-colored face, destitute of hair and all expression. His desires, his desires was blood and women, and terrible stories were circulated in camp of horrid crimes committed by him when bearing another name in the Cherokee Nation and Texas. 
And before we left um, Frontreras, a little girl of 10 years was found in the chaparral, foully violated and murdered. The mark of a huge hand on her little throat pointed him out as the ravisher, as no other man had such a hand, but though all suspected, no one charged him with a crime. Um, so that's the character in the in in Chamberlain, right? Which is very close, but uh, certain details are not don't fit. Like you, you don't you you don't get the sense that uh, the judge's weakness was women. You know? Well, like, he, he didn't have a. So that's the interesting thing. The judge doesn't necessarily have a weakness. It's almost like he's the devil. Yeah. Like yeah. when they met him, he was just kind of sitting on the rock waiting for them to come. Right. Um, but then his whole philosophy, as he just kind of unfolds it, is really fascinating about how he's uh, recording the entire world because if he did not give consent for something to be, like it does not have a right to be. Like he's. Yeah. yeah. It's extremely Old Testament. He's he's very much demiurgic, uh, Old Testament yeah. God, uh, mad with trying to, well, the whole aim of art being to recreate the cosmos. And, and also, it's like, he's kind of like Thanos, which is kind of a silly uh, comparison, but it is, it is kind of accurate. Um, just this total control. Yeah, he's, he's. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, he's he's definitely like the, uh, like sort of the Gnostic take on the Old Testament God, like Yaldabaoth right. or something like the, mm -hmm. the the sort of demiurgic God who takes himself as being the most powerful thing. Yeah, and that's yeah. another tie-in. That's another tie-in with um, Moby Dick, right? Because um, is that that. Those, that famous line in, in Moby Dick about uh, uh, yeah how how Moby Dick there's an evil thing behind Moby Dick that uh, that um, leaves men with half a lung and half a half a heart or something like that like just like a, kind of mutilates men um, um, and and it's 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 definitely who the judge is as well you know it's like a, the judge sees in his own philosophy, I was trying to piece it all together, like in his own philosophy, yeah, he says everything is possible in the world, yeah, um, like that quote I, I was just reading. But uh, the purpose of the individual, the individual man, is to um, find a thread of order through mm -hmm. it, like finding like he says at one point like like finding a thread in a, in a maze so that you don't get lost in the maze like that sort of thread of ariadne or whatever you know like yeah. um and by doing that you you create order in the world that's the only source of order in the world is through your own will right and so uh -huh. so the so the whole purpose of war in the judge's viewpoint is to have his will dominant over everybody else right like that that's that's what war determines um, yeah and then the other guy that this guy is like is uh crowley uh yeah you know yeah, another yeah. large bald guy and <laughs> it's, yeah, it's yeah. kind of a trope this at this point but crowley is of that trope and uh yeah 
the man who believes that love, whatever the the thelemic law it is, I can't recall, but yeah, law of the strong. Yeah, and then and then so so it's it's the aeon of Horus in Tor in in uh, in Crowley, which is the aeon of the child, right? And so this book starts out like uh, see the child, yeah, yeah, which is another. Moby Dick reference. So call me Ishmael. See the child. Ishmael, see the child. And then, uh, and then also uh, Lolita. I, feel I got Lolita vibes from it because that's how Lolita starts essentially. But I mean, it's also it, it's also it's also Nietzsche, right? Like it's also like Nietzsche talking about the uh, like in in Zarathustra, he's talking about the three metamorphoses, right? Mm-hmm. I name you the three metamorphoses of the spirit, how the spirit shall become a camel and the camel a lion and the lion at last a child. Yeah. And this is this is the way to the, the Superman. Yeah. Um, so that's 2001 and, A Space Odyssey. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's um, so. He, so in a way, the judge is also the star child, like he's a twisted version of the star child or or maybe not like maybe that's what happens after you go beyond good and evil like i i, I think that's the big question that he's that mccarthy's playing with in a, in a sense um, i like that so so in and and then and then there's the question of okay is is the judge an avatar of chaos right he just wants chaos or actually is he an avatar of order you know like and 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 so he's he's Saturn. kind of he's kind of the apotheosis of what Mason and Dixon are doing, like creating the first line across the wilderness, and judges the judge is doing the same thing. He has to include everything into his book in order to in order to bring it to order. You know, um, mm-hmm. that man who sets himself the, the task of singling out the thread of order from the tapestry will, by the decision alone, have taken charge of the world. And it is only by such taking charge that he will affect a way to dictate the terms of his own fate. Yeah, the line, the the line of order in the tapestry is exactly the Mason and Dixon line, right? Like that's the first, that's the start of it. Right? But then you become disconnected from the power source, like the ultimate, like the the God beyond God, like the the ultimate, the the one, basically, right? In the in the Gnostic point of view, right? You, you, yeah, you detach yourself from that because you deny it. You deny that there is any other power beyond yourself. Mm. Except that he doesn't. So I'm not sure if he's totally consistent in his philosophy, the judge. You know, that, that, that's the question, too. And it's the question that the kid has. Like, he's, the kid is always saying, you're crazy, right? And the judge says, it's not me that's crazy. Yes. So maybe, so maybe he, maybe he's, this is the thing. Like, if you went, went through his philosophy, it it it's very consistent. All his huge like uh, speeches that he makes, um, they're pretty consistent one to another, with some exceptions, maybe some big exceptions, right? But I, I don't know what you think about that. But then he's also yeah no you're right because he doesn't talk. He's he's like he's trying to be the master of his own destiny but then he he mentions on multiple times about how everyone's called to play their role and they don't mm-hmm. need to know what's really going on you know cuz their role you know doesn't have the entire history in it um 
but he's calling out the kid because he was the only one who did not like what did he say only each was called upon to empty out his heart into the common and one did not can you tell me who that one was and the kid whispers you were the one yeah 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 that's exactly that's his case against the kid at, at the end um alex like so he, he says that um he basically tells he, he visits the kid in jail and by this time he's the kids in jail and the judges the judges in a beautiful suit and looks right like, uh, looks completely dapper and so somehow <laughs> i don't know somehow he tapped into like uh wealth in a, in a sense or something like wealth and responsibility again and then he he told so he told the the government that the kid was responsible for the whole downfall of the glanton gang and what had happened and that the kid shaped events along this calamitous course and this word calamitous again comes up right and he and the kid conspired with the savages with the yuma leading to the massacre at the uh, at the ferry um and so it was never the judge who was crazy it was always the kid you know but but the bigger the bigger judgment is that the kid was a witness against himself you know like he um the judge he was a judge against his own deeds he put he, he put his own allowances before the judgments of history and he broke with the body which is the gang and the which the kid pledged to be a part of and he poisoned its enterprise um he always thought the worst of the judge, too, in terms at the end. You know, like, so the priest was in his ear saying, you need to kill him right yeah, now. He's always, he's always hissing at his elbow. <laughs> but, him, um, like, he and we really believe that the judge, like, killed Brown and Toadvine and took their weapons. And, you know, like, the worst possible scenario was playing out. Which he it's, didn't. Yeah, which he, he didn't. didn't. No, yeah. he didn't. Like he he fairly used his own money to trade those right. things and, that he and needed. Right, and so like he was sitting there. He's like, no, the meat is to share. This is for everyone. How much right. do you want for the hat? Right, right. And then and he it, pulls out his wallet. And so money was not a hard thing for the judge. He had plenty of money all the time. And then even when he tracks them in the desert later, like he tracks the kid and he and Tobin. Did he mean to kill them? Like it wasn't until. Uh, the kid shot his horses um, at the urging of the priest, right? Right. And then, and then the and then the judge makes a comment like, "You, you've destroyed my property, property that he had bought himself through through this exchange with with Brown, right?" Mm -hmm. um, so, the, so the kid is guilty there. You know, the kid is guilty of destroying the judge's property. Like, so it's the, the, the kid. The kid can't really judge anyone because he's following this gang and presumably is taking part in these raids and he, he, ridiculous he's, violence. he's he's taking part but from the judge the judge's point of view he's being false the kid is being false because he still has a twinge of conscience and so he's divided against himself and he's divided against the the aims of the gang right yeah um, so he's not a he's not a true dancer in the dance is what it comes down to. Yeah. Uh -huh. But okay. so what's interesting because the the gang starts out and they were heroes. So the first time they came back to Chihuahua City, I think, with the scalps. Yeah. You know, they were heroes. Yeah. And then 
it was later on, you know, that they became scoundrels and then basically outlaws. Uh, yeah, which was in, like, I don't know if you, what, sorry. Um, the, it's like gassing up a gang and sending them out and then it get it's like the pot boiling over. Like it's it's a they hit a groove and they were just unable to uh, you know, stop. They became possessed by you know, this like something bad, as it often says. It's like he was they're possessed by something bad. And uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it so seems... since they're in this symbiotic relationship with the state, you know, in this weird way, like the the the, the violence begets more and then it turns back on you blowback <laughs> yeah it seems it seems in like when they were in chihuahua like just after a few days they're just having like massive orgies and and using up all the supply and drink and yeah, <laughs> like it's totally just, parallel <laughs> ravenous ma'am, yeah. kind of activity that just sucks the blood of civilized society and uh so-called and then just moves on to the next to the next town heading west and then and then the next town they were treated like heroes too at first and then it says yeah when they entered it was just a smaller village and then when they entered everybody's following them and cheering them on and then it says when they when they left not even a dog was following them (laughs) they just they just like violated the entire village you know like um, so it's just like uh well, he uh, at one point he describes. Well, that's when the Glanton gang first comes up, um, and he's just uh, McCarthy's describing all these people that the kid and Toadvine are seeing, and he describes it as. I don't. I can't find the. Uh, oh yeah, right here. It's two, it's eighty two. He he describes it as this, uh, um, heliotropic plague or something. You know, like a, forget, forget the uh, the exact phrase. It's great. Um, what's the plague uh, they saw patched Argonauts from the states driving mules through the streets on their way south through the mountains to the coast gold seekers itinerant degenerates bleeding westward like some heliotropic plague <laughs> oh yeah so like following the sun this plague that's following the sun across westward and then and then it and then it gets into the uh the Glanton gang it says and and they saw one day a pack of vicious looking humans mounted on unshod Indian ponies riding half drunk through the streets bearded barbarous clad in the skins of animals stitched up with thews armed with weapons of every description revolvers of enormous weight and bowie knives the size of claymores and short two-barreled rifles and boars you could stick your thumbs in and the trappings of their horses fashioned out of human skin and their bridles woven up from human hair and decorated with human teeth, and the riders wearing scapulars or necklaces of dried and blackened human ears, and the horses raw-looking and wild in the eye, and their teeth barred like feral dogs, ride and riding also in the company a number of half-naked savages reeling in the saddle, dangerous, filthy, brutal, the whole like a visitation of some heathen land where they and others like them fled on human flesh. It's interesting how many times it says human here all the, all the way through. 
That was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. You've been listening to 42 Minutes Seasonal Book Club, a production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows, or just subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at SyncBook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others as currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. Just type book club and all the links appear. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thank you so much. And this is an orchestration for an event, for a dance, in fact. The participants will be appraised of their roles at the proper time. For now, it is enough that they have arrived. I did my best to notice when the call came down the line up to the platform of surrender I was brought but I was kind and sometimes I get nervous when I see an open door close your eyes clear your heart cut the cord Are we human, or are we dancers? My sign is vital, my hands are cold And I'm on my knees, looking for the answer Are we human, or are we dancers?
Dancers 